You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey guys, welcome back to The Devoted Podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. So today I am wanting to discuss something that I have sort of hinted on a lot of times. It's sort of a uh, drum that I think Amy likes to beat a lot. Sorry about that. But it's a really important one. And where I want to go today is talking about our words. And our words matter. You know how I get all kinds of animated and excited about old dictionaries. Yes, I really do think, guys, if this is the very first devoted podcast that you're ever listening to, you may scratch your head at some lady who thinks that actual hard dictionaries are something that every library should have, that everybody should have access to. Not only do I love old books, that's kind of a thing of mine anyway, but I really feel like you guys should all own your own hard copy of a dictionary. And if I could give you a little summer assignment here, summer's coming in a couple months, and you know you have all the cool estate sales or garage sales or whatever, and maybe Some people have not heard about the fascination and how amazing it would be to have your actual old dictionary. So you might find all kinds to choose from. And where I will give you the little treasure hunt, though, is to find a dictionary that is published at least in 1950 or further back. Even the 70s, guys. I have a really cool dictionary that I feel like is old, but it's actually, it was published in 1973. And even some of those, I'm like, oh, well, it's okay. But my 1950s one, I really like. So that's my assignment for you. Maybe a little treasure hunt for you this summer to try and find an actual hard copy of a Webster dictionary. There's also the Winston dictionaries, one I use a lot also. But the Webster's obviously the original. And I'm going to talk about that dude that authored that amazing dictionary in just a second here, but maybe find an actual dictionary. I feel so strongly about the craziness of online dictionaries. My crazy mind actually went to the place of, I wonder if we could like figure out something with our keyboards where they just zap your little hand for a second if you have, if you start to search something on the Google dictionary. Would that be too far? Okay, it might be a little too far. But I'm just telling you guys, there's nothing regulated on a Google dictionary. I mean, they just get to decide. I don't know who they is, but somebody is deciding what our words are going to mean today. And I do understand that there is a natural, I suppose, evolution a little bit of language over time. You know, obviously, there's things that we have today that we didn't have 100 years ago. Today, when you say byte, as in like B-Y-T-E on a computer, a megabyte or some kind of memory thing, well, that would have meant something completely different 100 years ago that didn't even exist. So of course, there's going to be new terms and dictionaries that we didn't always have back then. And even sometimes there can be changes in meaning in a kind of a general sense. But I think we have kind of taken for granted a little bit that our language should just evolve with us and that it should just change and be a little bit more fluid that sadly we're losing the crux of what words do mean and what the basis and the standards should be for those words. I think I come by my dictionary and are wanting to define our terms honestly. I was a debater in high school and I I don't know, even before then, ninth grade, somewhere in there. 
And this is something that's really common if you are have ever done good old-fashioned Lincoln-Douglas debate, is you have to define your terms. We have to know, are, are we working with the same meaning of the word? Because there used to be a day where we understood that this was really vital to make sure that when we're going in any kind of discussion or an argument, and I don't mean in like a fight, but like meaning two sides of an issue, making sure we were coming from a place where we knew what the definition of the words meant. So I mentioned earlier Noah Webster. I've never read a biography on Noah Webster, but I think I'm going to put this on my list for this year because just even the little snippets that I read about this guy, he's kind of fascinating to me. He was part of the Constitutional Convention, and some of his best buds were George Washington and Ben Franklin. They were kind of boyhood friends a little bit, and they would chat back and forth. Now, of course, we know Noah Webster as being the most famous for authoring the dictionary, which, guys, took him a mere 27 years to write the dictionary. You know how we have a lot of authors and things today where they're like busting out a book a year or maybe two or whatever they're doing, which I have no idea how you even do that. Nope, the dictionary took him 27 years to write. And he kind of became most famous for this little blue book and they called it the Blue Backed Speller. And it was just called that because the binding on it was blue. But it basically was how everybody learned how to spell back then. By the 19th century, there were 100 million copies of the blue-backed speller that were available, and that was just how everyone learned to spell. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I bring up Noah Webster, and, you know, why does this really matter? Well, as we talk about what our words mean, we go back to where the people that came up with our definitions, what, what, what informed their opinions, what informed where they came to their conclusions and how he was defining these words. And like I said, I don't, I haven't extensively researched Noah Webster. I I really do think I want to add this to my list of things to do. But I read this about what he said about religion. And this is really how he defined religion. He said, religion is a belief in the being and perfections of God, in the revelation of his will to man, in man's obligation to obey his commands in a state of reward and punishment, and in man's accountableness to God. He further defined what religion is not in saying that religion is not the practice of moral duties without a belief in a divine lawgiver and without reference to his will, meaning God's will or commands. Those things are not religion. So interesting to me, this guy that takes 27 years to put together what our dictionary is going to mean, this is this is the basis of how he even defines religion. Now, I would give you a free pass if you went ahead and would not have your computer zap you. And if you typed in define religion in what Google's Merriam-Webster dictionary is now, this is what it says. Religion is the state of being religious. It does say it's a service and worship of God or the supernatural, a commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance. Decent definition. I'd suggest it's kind of missing some of the meatiness we just got from Noah Webster, though, where he is saying it's a belief in the being and perfections of God. Now, to be fair, I believe that this particular quote on what Noah Webster is defining as religion, I don't know that that's exactly what he is saying religion in his dictionary. Again, the old dictionary I have is in 1950s and it's a Winston. My Webster one's a little bit newer than that and I have not seen it in that. But the basis of where he was coming from to define his terms, where he spends 27 years to work on what our words mean. 
You got to be really invested in something to spend 27 years working on that. But our words really matter. Culturally, we see this a lot, you know, because what one person means by one thing is clearly not what somebody else means by something. And often it's just kind of resulting in, I think what we see even with that religion definition a little bit, it's it's sort of just a dilution of meaning. So it, it's kind of losing its potency just a little bit. Let me give you another example of kind of something we're seeing very culturally right now. But this was a conversation in our house with our boys, so I'll just share it with you. But we were looking up what the definition of, of racism is. And if you look up what racism is in your Google online dictionary, it says it's prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalized. So that's, that's you know, everyone would go, okay, I can, I can see that. We can see how that would be a definition of racism. Now, my old dictionary, my 1950 Winston dictionary says this for racism. And this, again, note just how perhaps it's that our current definitions have been very diluted. But in the old dictionary, it says that racism is the doctrine that the races of mankind are essentially different in intelligence and moral quality. Can you believe that? Hence, it is the belief with a corresponding fear or dislike that is given a racial group as superior or inferior to others. Racism is ugly to me no matter how you define it, but particularly if you're going to define it how Winston's defining it there, that is a doctrine where the races of mankind are essentially different in intelligence or moral quality. Wow, that is really terrible. And that is what real racism is. And it's interesting, though, because, you know, we wield our poorly defined terms around kind of like loaded guns. And, you know, just we just call everything by these really inflammatory terms. And sadly, as we're wielding around our loaded gun of a poorly defined word, we're culturally just bleeding out over here to call everything racist detracts from what real racism is. I think we could agree on that. Words matter. The real reason that, like I, like I said, there's so many things culturally that we could just go that this is a mess with how our words are defined. But biblically, guys, words matter. This really, really matters. All the way back to words are so important that in John 1, John uses the Greek term logos to describe Jesus himself. Okay? So if that isn't putting a stamp on the fact that word is going to matter, I don't know what will. But right there in John 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm going to use a a phrase here, and I think I've probably referenced it in the podcast before, but we're going to talk about in conjunction with this being with words matter, the idea of linguistic theft. And the first time I read that phrase, it was in a book called Mama Bear Apologetics, which I fully recommend. It is an excellent resource, not just for moms. In fact, one of the authors is not a mom at all, but it is a really good resource for a lot of the things that are going on culturally and how it is an affront to our biblical values. But it's really good. But in Mom and Bear Apologetics, they have a whole chapter that's called Linguistic Theft. And what it is, is it's just more, I I hope that this term is actually used more widely if it's not, because I think we need an awareness to this. But our culture, the enemy himself, I think, is deceiving us about what our words mean and taking words that once meant something that maybe we all understood as one thing and then has shifted 
the definition to be something else. So a popular cultural example that I can think of with this is the symbol of the rainbow. At one time, the rainbow was everyone would have just naturally gone back to the Old Testament and thought of the flood and then the rainbow that appeared. That was God's promise that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. And it was a symbol of promise. Well, now the rainbow is the symbol, it is the flag, it is the emblem, really, of the LGBTQ movement. And everything gay pride is associated with the rainbow. It's kind of, That's not necessarily linguistic theft, I suppose, but it is a little bit. There is still the, the word rainbow, but then it's also this visual representation of the rainbow that has been kind of hijacked and taken into something else that is not at all what it was originally intended to be. I think one of the words that is probably the worst in this area, well, maybe I don't want to say the worst because I'll probably get to several, but it's, this is a big one, is love. Just that sweet four-letter word that means so much to us as believers, but this is a word that a lot of linguistic theft has been inflicted upon. Today, love means to basically just blindly accept anything about anyone in total disregard of whether it's right or wrong. I mean, you just you have to accept that. And to do anything but to accept that person is to not be loving. It's just I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. If you look up love in my old dictionary, one of its definitions actually says devotion to one of the opposite sex pretty sure that wouldn't have made it into the modern day definition. But those old school dictionaries are basing their things on biblical truths. They are basing themselves off of the definition of religion that Noah Webster gave there. So they are pulling in a biblical moral context for how we define these words. But this one is such a tough one, but you need to really recognize that there is a distortion of what this word means more popularly in our culture right now. God is love, right? We know that from 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, I could have stopped reading that verse at verse what was it, eight, where it says God is love, because often that is where everything stops in culture. They're like, yep, let's just camp out on this piece. God is love, because that is true, isn't it? But you need to read the rest of the passage to also see what is true in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Man, guys, our sin even makes it in that. To ignore that we have our sin is to negate the whole reason for the love that he showed us in the first place. It's really important. It's why he came. It's what defines why God is love. He's love because he came to send his son to die and be the propitiation, the covering, the payment for our sin. The famous love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, where we just see what is love. Love, it's love is patient, love is kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That's that full passage, okay? But I bet if you guys were to just 
sit down and, and start rattling off a few things that are in 1 Corinthians 13, you're probably going to think of those first ones first. You're going to say, yep, love is patient and love is kind and it does not envy. But you're probably going to start to trail off. And by the time we get to that last verse where it says, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, you might even go, wait, is that even in 1 Corinthians 13? I don't know if I remember that part. We like to leave that last one out. But is it loving to embrace someone's sin or is it truly loving to meet that sin with the truth? You know, try flipping any of those that in that list. Try flipping those and see if you still sound loving. Like, does it sound loving to say you're impatient? Does it sound loving to be unkind or boastful or arrogant or rude or irritable or resentful? If you say all of those things, you're going to be like, well, that doesn't sound very loving. Would it also sound loving then if we're just going to flip all of these to say, Rejoice in wrongdoing and mourn the truth, because that's what you would be doing if you were to flip that. But that one is just as important that we are to not rejoice in wrongdoing and we are to rejoice in the truth. That's just as much in that passage as being patient and kind and not envying all of those things that we know love to be. The true definition of love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So since we're here on this topic of truth here, here's another pesky term that's kind of all up for debate. What is truth anyway? I mean, can we really know what truth is? And this is such an old, old ancient argument. If we want to go back to like the New Testament times, they had this group of folks called the Gnostics. And there's all kinds of places, guys, in the New Testament where we are warned in the epistles from Paul about false gospels. And lots of times it was coming from this group of people, the Gnostics, who just kind of their whole idea is that you just can't really know what is true. But it really even goes back further than that, because really Satan used this with Eve in the garden when he asked, did God really say? Yeah, that's what he says to Eve in Genesis 3 when they're having their little conversation about whether or not she should eat from, from the tree in the garden. And he says, did God really say, here's that, there's that little bit of that doubt. Are you sure that's true? It's the precursor to his next ploy when he is basically, how can we really know what the truth is and thereby define it? That's the place he would go today. How can you even really know what the truth is? But he, guys, he's, the enemy has been doing that same tactic all the way to the garden. Why do I tell you all this, this history? I think it's important to know that there's nothing new under the sun. Our pastor at Athey Creek, Pastor Brett, always says that. He says there's nothing new under the sun. And he always says this too. He says, if it's true, it isn't new. And if it's new, it isn't true. And I want to just add that, I guess, because the progressive thinkers today, and I put progressive in little air quotes, guys, because... I think even that they've changed a nuance to that word as well. But progressive thinkers today want you to think that this is an amazing enlightenment, you know, that we that we could start questioning what is true and finding truth and just sounding super smart and philosophical, that this sound makes us sound just intelligent and like we're being enlightened, that, you know, we understand better now. We know more now. But this is a really old argument. So I already told you all the way back in the garden. In John 18, Pilate and Jesus have this conversation, and it's an important and interesting conversation to me because Pilate asks him some questions. In verse 37 of John 18, Pilate says to Jesus, he says, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
And then he says, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus continued and said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So right there, guys, we just see that truth, exclamation point, it matters. The definition of it matters. We can know it. And it's the whole reason that Jesus came. It says he came to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate, this is what's interesting to me, because he hears that. He hears those words like, I mean, you would think that that would answer some questions for him. And instead, Pilate says to him in verse 38, what is truth? Guys, this sounds like the latest from some progressive church right out right there, or maybe an author or a quick little meme, putting that age old question in your mind from the enemy himself of what is truth? Can you really know? And so much of the progressive church movement right now is steeped in this we can't know column. That's kind of where they live. And it isn't lost on me that it's kind of a contradiction to the also what they say, we know more now thinking. I mean, isn't that kind of hilarious? But it's true. And they would say, and if we can't know, then we certainly can't rely on the Bible. That's really where they come down. And that's what they want you to believe. But truth is so foundational. To not have it is to basically have your feet planted in midair. It's just not going to work. We've got to have this foundation. And truth is a word that is getting hijacked to mean kind of, well, why I won't, I just won't say what's true for me has to be true for you. So it falls into the whatever is true to you. And I'm not trying to sound condescending. I, I truly am not. But at the same time, this is this argument just falls apart. True to you, sure. That sounds so sensitive and inclusive, but it also sounds pretty self-exalting, right? I mean, why should I, why should you have the final say on what is true? I mean, if we really think about that, why, why? Remember that story back in Jeremiah about the potter and the clay? Let's read that real quick because I always feel like this is such a good and really humbling and very needed reminder for me. But in Jeremiah 18, let's just read the first few verses of that. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse one through four says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, arise and go to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Okay, it's only four verses, but this is so such a really cool picture to me. Let me read you real quick Romans 9, 20 through 21, and then we'll talk about this in a second. But Romans 9, 20 through 21 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That's just so clear, isn't it? But we, we don't like this truth. But truth is not about our feelings. We don't like this idea that there is a creator that can take one lump of clay, in this case, and can make it into one thing and do something completely different with the other. That, in we'll talk about in a little bit, that's certainly not an equity and an outcome, is it? We don't like that. We also don't like this idea that we're dirt. Truth is not about our feelings. If we don't, not liking that God can call one thing sin and one thing righteousness doesn't change the nature of it being true. It just is. 
but this becomes very emotional and this becomes all kinds of inflammatory language around it that we probably need to stop and define. And we just find ourselves in a place where we're reacting more out of emotion than we are from the basis of, well, what is true in this situation? And what is true is that, guys, it's pretty ridiculous for the clay, the dirt, to be able to tell the creator that he should be doing something different. Sometimes I sort of feel like this is where we are most like the rebellious Israelites sometimes. You know how you can read the Old Testament and sometimes I think we get a false sense of superiority. Okay, maybe, maybe this is me, but I'll, you know, we'll like to say, well, we would never grumble against the Lord about the manna that he provided. That I mean, we wouldn't do that. We we would never follow after gods of the other nations and, and make a golden calf. We wouldn't do that. I mean, look at all that God had done. We would never do that. We sound pretty good, don't we? We wouldn't do that. The issue might look different, but it really isn't so different, I don't think. You know, instead of a golden calf or the gods of other nations, what is our God, little g? Well, in this case, it's it's you. It's me. It's our intellect. We know so much. When we presume to tell the creator that we know more, we become our own God. And that's why I like the analogy of the potter and the clay so much, because it's a great reminder that we are a messy, soggy clump of dirt. And it's crazy to think that this messy clot of dirt could say anything at all, certainly anything intelligible, okay? But then much less say anything that would supersede the knowledge of the one doing the creator, the potter, the creator of all things as as God is. How in the world could we come up and say, you can't do this. We know more than you. It truly is ridiculous. I hope you followed me on my trail there on where I was heading with the potter and the, and the clay and just how crazy that argument is because we do need to understand what it is that we're meaning by the word truth. And, and it does lead down that road, guys. It leads down a place where the very definition is no more possible than dirt talking to the potter. And yet, just as Israel grumbled, and turn to other gods. And in one way, we look back and say, oh, no, you know, you guys shouldn't do that. We need to see where this leads because we're really doing something way worse. You have to understand that truth is not something that can ever be redefined. And if we do so, if we try to redefine that truth, we really are playing with fire. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is a truth and your eternal soul quite literally depends on it. Words matter. You might also recognize when language is being used to just trigger an emotional response. And this is really big right now where people use their words to just elicit emotion. I mean, this is kind of a silly example. It's not like you're going to see this on the meme, but I just thought of when people say, you know, I can't help it. It's just who I am. And that is said, and, and there's sort of like this emotion sparked on both sides. If somebody says, I can't help this, you know, this is just who I am. Well, nobody ever wants to deny someone's identity, right? I mean, where's that going to fall in the loving column, right? As we are defining it typically. But what is being redefined in that statement? When they say, you know, I can't help it. This is just who I am. The thing that's being defined there, you, you have to pause, take the emotion out of it. And figure out what it is that we're defining there. And what they're defining there is is identity. They're defining identity. And who gets to do that? Do, do I get to define 
Identity. Do you get to define identity? See, where we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble is if we don't agree on the authoritative standard of the definition. Scripture is authoritative, right? That's where we need to come. And scripture tells us about our identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How about Ephesians 2.10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's telling us who we are. If we can't help being angry or giving into temptation or sexual immorality, that's what it's saying. We can't help that. That's not what the Bible is saying. Genesis one twenty seven. we are image bearers of God. That is our identity. We aren't to fall victim to whatever our sin wants to tell us we are or whatever sin we're falling into. The sin does not define who we are. God defines who we are. So you need to kind of, when you hear statements, pause, take the emotion out and strip down and figure out what we're really defining in that statement and then go to the authoritative source for the definition of what we need to be defining. Where else do we see word theft or linguistic theft? I love this quote from Mama Bear Apologetics that I referenced earlier. She said in this chapter on linguistic theft, she said, quote, the side that controls the words love, truth, tolerance, justice, and equality is the side that can shut the conversation down, compel people to act without thinking, blur the issues, vilify the opponent, and basically win the argument on emotions alone. Why? And this, she says this, because everyone already believes in love, tolerance, justice, and equality. This is such an interesting point to me. So first of all, within that quote, we kind of defined a whole bunch of the really popular buzzwords that are being defined right now. We'll, we'll talk about um, justice in just a second. But love, truth, tolerance, justice, equality, those are all words that people are going to, they are redefining and they're going after those. And she brings up the end that the reason for it is because everybody already believes in those words. We don't have to form arguments to say why you should love or why you should show tolerance or why you should work in justice and equality. We don't have to fight for those because everybody already knows that that's what you should do. So I mentioned justice. Justice is a big deal. This, And I'm not saying this is a big deal culturally. Yes, it is a big deal culturally. Everybody's talking about that. But honestly, biblical Bible-believing Christian people, this is an issue to us. This is a bigger issue to us than it should be to culture. Because justice, it's not an extracurricular thing. God is just. It's an inseparable part of his character. I love Isaiah 1.8 where it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. God is just. He absolutely is. But here's where the conversation gets hairy. Because who is defining justice? If it is the world, then justice today just means equity, which, listen, equity, that is different than equality. Equality is not equity. Those are different things. Equity is based on the outcome, that everything be the same. No distinction. And this is far-reaching in our society right now. This is another one of those biblical issues that I kind of think feel political, but justice is biblical and something all believers in the one true God must be concerned with. But justice is not equal outcomes. I heard a talk recently that addressed this issue of equity, and it was interesting to me because he pointed out how creation, God's creation that we observe, is kind of the opposite of equal outcomes. 
I mean, just think about this, guys. Almost any example, but like some people are shorter, some people are taller. Some people, men are stronger than women. Women can bear children, men cannot. You know, there's not, there isn't an equity in that, is there? Mankind is all different colors, right? We don't look the same. The melanin in some people's skin is there's more of it in some than in others. It isn't equal. In fact, I think that it's something that is amazing about the diversity, really, of what God created. But as humans, we do have equal value as image bearers. There's not an equity in outcomes, but there is equal value in that we are image bearers of God. So we've talked about all kinds of things that words that get redefined, they're weighted words sometimes. Sometimes there's a lot of argument behind it. And I want to bring up just even if it's just a little bit of a tip on how you can enter these conversations with people. My kids and I, we actually just discussed this because when some of these issues come to the forefront and people say something that seems very inflammatory, like seems very agenda laden, you know, the first thing I would tell you is to take the emotion out of it. That's hard sometimes because sometimes when we read that little comment on social media or if we hear that little thing or somebody says that to us, it, it elicits an emotional response. But don't let it do that. So hang on a second. Take a deep breath. Don't let the emotion get control. And the next thing you want to say in that conversation is what do you mean by that? What do you mean by fill in the blank. What is this word that you're meaning when you say justice? What are you meaning by justice? That's where the conversation has to start. You have to stop a debate in its tracks by asking that question. And it's not to make you be able to come out on top as saying the next amazing smart thing. It's because you cannot move dialogue forward until you actually know where you're starting from. I think this is why I'm increasingly kind of tiring of the zippy little Instagram quote or the meme that just seems to give you that, oh, wow, you know, that I've never thought of it that way. Or like it just it's seriously it's done in what, three sentences or less. Right. And it just gives you this. Oh, man, that is just so insightful. And and there are abuses on both sides of this. I've seen it in both really well-meaning trying to have like a a biblical piece of encouragement, but then also on the other side, kind of attacking scripture. But it's so easy to take something out of context and and maybe use false definitions with these. And like I said, even on scripture on this, you got to be kind of careful because we can plop a verse with a cool background and be taking something totally out of context. So just be careful and be discerning with something that you see that is so insightful about what somebody said. Remember? I want to end on Philippians 4.8. I love this verse. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I had to spend a bit of time on truth here because it's camped out right there in that verse that we are told to think on what's true. And what do we know is true? And who defines it? God's word. I continue to ask you guys and encourage you guys all the time here on the podcast, study, know, but know what's true. And the thing that we know is true is God's word. Let it be the thing that defines our terms today. And, you know, maybe stop, pause at that next inflammatory argument or whatever it is, ask for the terms to be defined, but not just anything even as much as I like my old dictionaries, not just from the dictionary, 
but defining our terms from the ultimate source of truth. And then hold the line, gals, hold the line with our words. We need to not allow them by culture and obviously our kids and our schools and all these things, this all goes into this category, but we need to not let those things be redefined by that. We need to hold the line with this. Our words matter. Let's make sure that they are lining up with the truth of who God is and God's word. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.